This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people are saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio at 5pm, a little bit earlier at the close. The FTSE marginally positive up by 0.06%. In the United States on the S&P 500 down two tenths. The usual suspects leading the gains though, tech and healthcare. That gives the Nasdaq a lift. We're up by a half of 1%. Guys, just the same old story and it continues this Monday. Um, but the confusion, I think, on both sides of the Atlantic, John, about how these economies are going to reopen, I think, is is absolutely amazing right now, particularly here in the UK. Um, we had a speech last night from Boris Johnson, which was vague, and I'm being polite here about the details about how this is going to work. He's updated today. His government is updated today. Everybody uh, absolutely kind of up in arms about how exactly they are expected to return to work, uh, given the the level of detail that is being provided by government. Uh, And I think this is going to be a problem for investors to fathom as they try and figure out exactly what this reopening is going to look like. Do they prioritise economies and businesses that are going to benefit, not benefit from this return to work? Really difficult to call at the moment, John. It's really, really hard to get your hands around. I listened to the speech from the Prime Minister yesterday. It was about two o'clock our time here in New York, seven o'clock for you. And my mum texted me as soon as it finished and said, did anybody understand that? And for someone that follows news like the news we cover every single day, my mum's fairly in tune with a lot of this stuff. Just didn't have a clue what any of it meant, Guy, because it was too vague. You can exercise as much as you like. You can do that with only your own household. You can go to back to work if you want to go back to work, but if you don't have to carry on working from home, I think that's where it got really vague for a lot of people. Can we go back to work or not? June schools might open, July restaurants too. In between, no one's got any idea. And if we get another wave of infections, if the infection rate picks up again, do we shut back down? Do we have the same lockdown? I think there's a lot of, a lot of issues, a lot of questions still being asked that haven't been answered. We are going to talk about this a little bit more. I think that Marcus Ashworth is about to join us uh, from uh, Bloomberg Opinion. He's always got an opinion on this kind of thing. In the meantime, though, I haven't heard his voice for days, if not weeks. Let's get the latest now from Charlie Pellet. Thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Boris Johnson's government, as you guys were alluding to, says Britain should wear face coverings in enclosed public spaces and prepare for the new normal to last a year or more. Today, the government published a roadmap for the national recovery from coronavirus. With scientists confident levels of infection are falling across the country, the Prime Minister is attempting the balancing act of reopening the economy without causing a new spike of cases. The difficulty and dangers involved, though, are being reinforced by statistics showing construction workers, one of the groups Johnson has urged to return to work, have one of the highest rates of death from the virus. Sources say the UK will continue to pay workers' wages to protect jobs until the end of September under plans being considered by officials. Those sources say among the options ministers are weighing is allowing workers on the furlough program to return to their jobs part-time with employers and the government splitting salary payments.
The Undertaker Dignity says spending on funerals has slumped because of UK social distancing measures introduced to co- counter the COVID-19 pandemic. It says about 60% of clients are now choosing a quote, simple funeral package, up from 20% in the first quarter. That is the latest from the news desk. Uh, Jonathan Farrell, back to you now here in New York. Charlie Pellet, thank you, sir. I've missed you tons. It's great to hear your voice on this program. Thank you very much. Marcus Ashworth with us now, as Guy pointed out. Marcus, let's just talk about the Prime Minister's response in the last 24 hours. Mixed reception. Your take, please. I, I am confused, but it was put very clearly to me by, by my wife and uh, my son's there's a very male-female divide in this house on how Boris has handled the last 24 hours, or specifically Dominic Raab, anyway. Um, and namely, that they don't think the message is clear at all. They think that the government is confusing people, and people need more guidance. Um, I, I, I'm disgusted, disgraced to say that the male response is that, are people really that stupid? Surely, stay alert is, um, is pretty simple. They want people to get back to work and get the economy going. So read into that what you will, but I, I clearly think that the government does need to do more on this because uh, what may seem obvious to some evidently isn't to some of the media, and it never hurts to spell it out. Well, let's talk about what they need to spell out, Marcus. Is it the return to work where it's too vague? What's the specific point of the no, address I, yesterday that was too vague? I think it's, it's because people don't want to hear about stuff that doesn't necessarily relate to them. They want to know they're going to go and hug their grandchildren, if they can go and have a picnic in the park. Yeah. Um, and equally, uh, you know, we, we had a message from our cleaners saying, right, we can come back to work now. Now, that's not actually quite correct, because coming into our house and all the various different other bunch of people that might, you know, might come or something... It's not quite the message that should have got across from the government. So it is clearly being taken in different ways by different people, and that's something which needs to be spelt out in every situation. As yes, you can go out here, but you can't go in your another person's garden, or can you? Yep. Can you get on a bus, or can't you? And I think there is a misunderstanding of the media. I mean, over two thirds of, of people's commutes are done by car in this country. So encouraging people to go back to work is the key message of what Boris was trying to get because so many people have taken this literally and stayed at home. And they thought, okay, well, I shouldn't leave to go to work because I should stay at home. Well, that's not... If you are not able to work from home, then you should try and still go to work. And that was the key message which has got lost because the media, as usual, and understandably, always are seeking for more and want to have every situation that could possibly ever imagine. When is the cinema going to open next to the swimming pool? You know, all that sort of stuff. And and that's what the government, I think, needs to do. Marcus, isn't this just emblematic, though, of how difficult it is going to be to restart not only the UK economy, but economies around the world? Absolutely. And look, this is none of this is uh, laid out um, in a rule book or a textbook how to do it. They're making up literally as they're going along. There is very little... um, Compassion might be the wrong word, but sort of tolerance from the media to give the government a break here in stuff which is completely out of their hands, and it is guesswork. Um, The only thing that the government can do to ameliorate that is really up their game on the communication, because it's not good enough for me, perhaps, or you to understand it. It it has to be for everyone to understand in as many situations as is feasible to to keep people's attention. And um, it isn't very helpful that the other parts of the United Kingdom are are sticking with the, the different message or the, or the existing message, um, but that's politics. And unfortunately, there is a lot of politics in this which we could do without. 
Marcus, stick with us because we'll cover markets in the following segment. But, Guy, if you can help me out with something that I've really been scratching my head about in the last week or so regarding the UK, why have we only just started implementing a 14-day quarantine for for incoming passengers? And why, why are we implementing that now? as we're opening things up. Why didn't this happen before? I don't understand I, the sequencing of that at all. It does seem a little strange. I think it seems strange to a lot of people, including the airline industry. This would be the time you would have thought you'd be loosening it rather than tightening uh, such a requirement. If you read some of the, the, the sort of the press on the continent, I think there's a certain degree of amazement that the UK hasn't taken greater advantage of, of what is described as the island advantage. Being an uh, island. Being, yeah. <laughs> It does make it slightly easier. Uh, Anyway, we'll talk more about the markets in just a moment. Plenty to talk about. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area. John Farrow over in New York. I'm Guy Johnson joining you here in London. John, um... A similarity between the the United Kingdom and the United States at the moment is that neither of the two countries' central banks are saying that they will dip their toe uh, into the world of negative rates. Yet if you take a look at what is happening, particularly over in the United States at the moment, I just wonder if the market is starting to bully the Fed and pushing them in that direction, pushing it in that direction. The one-year, one-year swaps are starting to uh, certainly suggest that. They've been negative for three days now. I'm wondering, what are you hearing? Are people talking about the Fed potentially having to change course here? Because what the market wants, the market normally gets. Well, a bit of head-scratching here going on, Guy, especially on this side of the Atlantic, because no one on the FOMC has suggested at any point in time over the last several years that this is something that they would like to do, especially not the key characters. I don't know about the peripheral Fed presidents, but the key characters have largely ruled this out. Chairman Powell will be speaking on Wednesday, and I think this will be something that comes up, and that's his opportunity to slap it away. I think what we can draw a distinction, though, is between what happens with markets and what actually happens with the Fed. And if you think about the short end of the rates curve in, say, Germany and elsewhere, that dipped negative long before we started talking about the ECB going into negative territory. We've seen negative yields on T-bills this year, as well. So whilst I think we can rule out, at this point anyway, negative rates on the FOMC, I don't think you can rule out negative rates at the front end of the yield curve in America because of the amount of appetite for Treasuries and the Fed's participation in all of that buying as well. Marcus, where do you sit on this? Let's bring Marcus Ashworth back into the conversation. Uh-huh, fine. Uh, I, funnily enough, I spent all day looking at the UK, whether or not they would go to, we would go to negative rates, but it's, it's a precursor probably to where the Fed would be um, I don't think it works for either the UK or the US um, for idiosyncratic nature of the consumer-led economy and, and equally the complete lack of time that we've been down at these very low rates really to assimilate. I mean, Europe uh, had negative rates for quite a long while and because they were very close to that and they needed to get their very sluggish economies going and lots of different things like that. But, I mean, the weight of money argument that John highlighted there is, is quite interesting because... You know, two-year yields in the UK are at zero, and you know you can look at various different measures, and you can quite evidently see that the front end could go negative um, at some point. And does that bully the central banks into doing something? I, I think I'll, I'll side actually with with Guy there. I think you're right. Is it's quite likely that quite a bit of the, of the front end uh, will go negative at various points in the US, but I don't think. And the key person here is always Richard Clarida, the, the, the vice chairman. He's the big brains there. 
um, whether or not he, he hints whether there will be negative rates. I just don't think uh, this is the right response um, in, at this time because of the unintended consequences, the unknown unknowns, and it's too big an economy to, to mess around with. The one thing I would ride that with, though, it would be excellent for emerging markets if U.S. rates went negative. So it would be lovely <laughs> for the rest of the world. What it would do for the U.S. economy, not so sure. Marcus, what would lead to high yields at this point? What do you need to see? Oh, I think it's a buyer strike on, on too much supply. Um, we've got a new 20-year Treasury coming. That could spit badly. Um, and I think that would be something which the U.S. Treasury would be very worried about. They have to manage this coordinated Fed QE buying with U.S. Treasury issuance. Uh, the same problem in the U.K., um, it is something which has to be ma- managed very carefully. There is just is perhaps too much. Um, the other real worry, which is a much bigger worry, is if the dollar demand around the world all of a sudden reignites, and this is huge demand for dollars. Uh, we saw that happen in the U- and U.S. Treasury market in mid-March, and all of a sudden there was a reversal up in rates when rates yields went higher, which scared everyone because it was very odd to see stocks go down and bond yields go up at the same time. It was it was not how things should be, and but that's more a systemic worry, which I think the Fed has pretty much extinguished, but always want to keep an eye on. Marcus, thanks for spending some time with us today. We greatly appreciate it. We haven't been able to do this uh, for quite some time because of the briefings that normally take place at this point. Uh, we're going to play you some of the best sound that has been uh, coming out of Bloomberg's coverage uh, of the markets today. We've been talking to a number of people today, including uh, the Spanish economy minister. We've also heard from the CEO of Southwest uh, over in the United States. All of that potentially coming up. Uh, here on Bloomberg. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. I'm Guy Johnson in London. John Farrow's over in New York. UK facing airlines under pressure today uh, as a result of the new UK quarantine rules. Ryanair, uh, IAG, EasyJet, all uh, under a little bit of pressure. Uh, over in the United States, as the economy starts to reopen, the big question for the airlines is how quickly will demand come back? Earlier, Vonnie Quinn and I spoke to Southwest uh, Chairman and CEO Gary Kelly, and I put that question to him. Well, the d- demand is still very, very modest. We're, uh, uh, you know, we're seeing very gradual uh, improvements uh, in air traffic. Uh, our load factor last week was probably uh, around 20 percent uh, at best. So there are, uh, at least on Southwest, we're not booking our airplanes full anyway uh, to allow for physical distancing on the airplane. So you won't see a full airplane. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the good news is we are, we are beginning to see a recovery. The, our, our government has asked us to remain open, open for business uh, throughout, so we've never shut down. Uh, but we have reduced a lot of our flights. Uh, and, you know, we're working with the government to uh, hopefully implement uh, temperature screenings so that uh, we don't have ill uh, passengers getting into the airport and onto airplanes. We've got a number of cleaning procedures that we've implemented. Uh, hand sanitizers are uh, are available. We're asking customers and employees to wear masks. We have HEPA filters on board the aircraft, creating hospital quality uh, air. Uh, so there's a number of uh, of things that are being done. It's a multi-layered approach uh, to make the environment just as safe as we can possibly make it. 
Gary, as you say, like load factors in the 20s um, it is not something that is ultimately sustainable. How long do you think it is, it is going to take to get load factors back up to the level at which most routes are viable, most legs are viable? Uh, and do you think ultimately uh, that some routes are not going to be viable uh, at the kind of load factors and seat densities that you are probably going to have to live with for quite some time? Well, taking air traffic... Uh, worldwide as a whole, I think uh, we'll see, uh, because we're in a recession, we're going to see uh, a very gradual return of business traffic. That's very uh, typical uh, in a recessionary environment, and that's exactly what we've got. Uh, You were talking about international travel earlier. I think international travel is also going to be very slow to return. So I think it will be years before we get back to 2019 traffic levels. Uh, In terms of the consumer, Um, Historically, in recessions, uh, consumers do travel. They watch their budgets. Uh, They'll be looking for uh, low fares. Of course, uh, I I do think that uh, low fare carriers like Southwest will see more demand in an environment like this. Um, But I think overall, it will take several years for the traffic to recover. Which routes will you lose without more aid or drawing down more from the, the federal budget that you, can, that you can apply for? You're already receiving 3.2 billion and you can apply for an additional 2.8. But what are your scenarios, Gary? What routes are you thinking might be the first to go? And, and with the $3.2 billion under the CARES Act that you mentioned, it's important to note that all that money is earmarked to uh, our employees, and even that doesn't cover uh, our payroll through September the 30th. Um, well, at this point, we're still serving um, all of our domestic destinations that we were serving before the crisis. We don't have any international service points right now because that's being restricted. Um, We don't have any plans to close any destinations, and uh, all of the itineraries that we had before, with the exception of the international, uh, are are still available. I think we just have to see how demand recovers. Uh, We're the largest airline in the U.S. uh, in terms of uh, domestic seats, and uh, we're going to do everything we can to preserve jobs and continue to serve our communities very well. Now, you were offering early retirement, extended leave in June. Already about 10,000 workers have taken voluntary leave or partial pay options. How much more cutting and pruning do you need to do in order to carry on, as you just said, Gary? Well, at this point, I don't think uh, an airline can be too small, if, if, if you know what I mean. So uh, anything that we can do to reduce the uh, uh, consumption of resources, uh, I think, will be helpful, certainly here in the near term. We haven't offered early retirement yet, uh, but I do plan to do that, uh, and we'll be uh, introducing that in June. So all voluntary options for people to uh, exit the airline we'll be exploring, and uh, that I think we'll want to continue that uh, well into next year. Gary, can I just take you back to what you said a few moments ago about the low-cost carriers likely to see a disproportionate amount of demand coming back? Do you think consumers are going to be price sensitive? Do you think there'll be some elasticity here, i.e. lower fares will drive higher demand? Or do you think that that passengers will be looking for other factors, such as, as you say, social distancing, uh, maybe priority boarding, these kinds of factors? Well, obviously, what is so unique is that this this is a pandemic. We haven't seen anything like this in our lifetime. 
And uh, that does demand that until people are comfortable that the virus is under control with uh, therapeutics, with uh, vaccines, uh, that absolutely will need to be, uh, the soci- our society will need to continue to have these kinds of precautions with social distancing and with uh, uh, cleaning, with masks, hand sanitizers, all of those things will need to continue. At some point, we'll get past the pandemic. At some point, uh, I believe we'll get back to uh, uh, a more normal uh, condition, but I don't see that happening for quite some time. So more than a low fare will be required, you're right. But in addition to all those other things, low fares are absolutely fundamental in an environment like this, uh, and especially since uh, I would expect business travel to be so weak. That's interesting, that last little bit, uh, business travel likely to remain weak and Customers maybe not, passengers maybe not, uh, as price sensitive as they once were. Other factors likely to come into play. European Airlines, as I say, under pressure uh, as we came through the close today. Ryanair down by 6%. Uh, you saw IAG down by 2%. EasyJet was also under pressure as well uh, on the UK quarantine, the 14-day quarantine entering the country. Plenty more still to come. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. It is his anthem, his song. I think this means Charlie Pellet is in the building for round two with Charlie. Charlie, this is your favorite, isn't it? It, it, it? You know, it puts a smile on my face. I always give you that I don't want to hear this song, and uh, normally yeah, I would get no, up and start... Doesn't it bring us a little closer? It, it, you know, it, it's funny. I was just thinking that. There I would be dancing in the studio along with the song, and <laughs> sitting at home, working from home is just so unbelievably bad. I just cannot describe isn't how much strange? I hate it, and I can't wait to get back to the office. I, I work wait. ten times more from home than I do at work. Yeah, because what happens is you wind up checking emails over the weekend. You wind up finding out little things that you can do in time, you know, for the week ahead, whether it's research or recording things. And uh, you know, I would never dream of doing stuff on a weekend. All of a sudden, here I am. So, are you you more productive or less productive, though? It, it, you know what, the the question there is, uh, I would say probably less productive at home, but I've got more time to do it because there's no commute. There's time when you can do things in between everything else. So, you know, there's less pro- less less productive, but more time in which to be productive. Does that and make getting sense? stuff done. There's just a little bit more friction in getting stuff done as well. I- exactly, exactly. And I know Jonathan Farrow, you know, don't get him started on the technical issues that he had on television today. So, <laughs> <laughs> Did you see that, Charlie? I, I, I didn't. I, I listened to the audio later on, and I could only sympathize because it's, you know, it, it broadcasting is one of those industries where 25 years ago... I said it couldn't be done from home and guess what yeah. 25 years later it is being yeah. done from home for the most part fairly successfully so all right guys a lot going on in the world today in terms of news i do want to begin of course in the aviation industry ryanair holdings challenging french government help for air france klm in its latest legal attack on allegedly unfair government support for favored national carriers amid the covid19 crisis the airline uh, saying today it has filed a lawsuit at the european union's general court seeking to topple the eu's for a program delaying aviation tax payments for companies with a French license. Boris Johnson's government says Britain 
should wear face coverings in enclosed public spaces and prepare for the new normal to last a year or more. Today, the government published a roadmap for the national recovery from coronavirus. With scientists confident levels of infection falling across the country, the prime minister is attempting the balancing act of reopening the economy without causing a new spike in cases. The green shoots of recovery for home prices in London's wealthiest districts have been stamped out before they even took hold. Prices in prime central London dropped 0.3% between March and April, taking the annual decline to 1.3%, according to a report today from broker Knight Frank. That is the latest from the news desk. We're all working from home. Back to you now, Jonathan Farrow here in New York. Charlie, thank you, sir. Always great to catch up with you. Here's a line from a paragraph by Luke Cower today. Fiscal and monetary support over the past few weeks of the coronavirus pandemic successfully warded off a financial crisis, but a return to economic normalcy is still a long ways away and investors have gotten ahead of themselves. That comes from Goldman Sachs and that was written up by Luke Cower a little bit earlier on this morning. Mr. Cower, vulnerable to a big move to the downside, apparently. Uh, yeah, at least at least according to, uh, to Goldman there, they've got a, a three-month price target for the S&P 500 that uh, you know, is about 500 points below where it is now, about 18% below where it is now so obviously there's a you know a fair degree of skepticism into this and it's kind of it's a kind of it's a weird situation when you think about it because right now they're talking about the fear of missing out being a potentially big driver of, of equity prices at the same time they're talking about sentiment has barely improved uh for by all their metri- measures since the the march 23rd low and also if you look at positioning it's still you know incredibly incredibly late so it's, uh, it's kind of difficult to concern where this fear of missing out is manifest uh you know but perhaps this is, is where the, the downside it? looms it's in tech stocks. That's I. That's the market at the moment. That's what's driving everything at the moment. That's what's driving the Nasdaq uh, back into positive territory on the year. It's what's driving the S and P higher. In order for the S and P to go lower, people have got to sell tech stocks at this point. What is going to make them do that? Uh, definitely, that's uh, you know a huge part of it. I'd also you know, point out or caution though that you look at equal weight S P five hundred. It's you know besting the broad index off the lows. So you know, a lot of the outperformance story, or relatively speaking at least, has to do with the less damage on the way down part for tech than it necessarily does to do with all the upside on the way up. So that is, is part of it. Uh, when it comes to tech, one thing that could uh, you know be a, a bit of a damper is the, the things that companies are doing right now to kind of take advantage of the situation or set themselves up for the longer term. They aren't necessarily good for the short term. And the easiest example of this is Amazon and the, the earnings reaction to Amazon, where you saw that, you know, because of higher expenses now, both to kind of protect employees and to make sure that the, you know, the company can kind of capitalize on the, the situation that's seen a bigger shift in, uh, in share to online in general. Uh, just the expenses highlighted with that will make that will mean the near term profit picture is a little more difficult. So the you know the whole things being uh, throughout this that you know if you've been long tech it's been smart and you've been even more forward looking and you've you've been kind of blessed and rewarded for being more forward looking. Your ability to be more forward looking will be put to the test because it might appear uh, for tech companies as if they do have some degree of cyclicality to them. You know they obviously do, but it might uh, appear that they have more just because of the things they're doing to set themselves up for the longer term over the next few quarters. A little bit of a myth, this market rally in some ways, in many ways, in fact. If you look at a single name like JP Morgan, we're still 30 plus percent off the highs 
hardly rallied off the bottom. If you look at high yield spreads, they blew out aggressively, tightened aggressively, and haven't done much for the last month or so. Luke, just sort of zigzagging along the bottom over the last couple of weeks. Similar move in the US dollar. It's actually been really, really interesting. We had this huge move, a blowout, in the middle of March. And then we had a correction when the Fed stepped in, and it lasted for several weeks. And then the last few weeks has just been a bit of a grind to nowhere. Yeah, it's it's been a heck of a lot of factor rotation that you've seen under this. And like, in all honesty, one of the the I've talked to Nafis Nella at the IAA All Weather Partners this morning, and you know when you hear the the rumors about Amazon and AMC, that is essentially the the two prongs that has driven a lot of the equity market. If you think in the past. Uh, two weeks to a month, say, period. It's both the promise of the the big names who are poised to weather this well and do better, and then the potential for these massive short squeezes and all the smaller stuff that's been aggressively shorted and reshorted on bounces, and that has a lot of room to the upside once once things actually move. So the factor rotation has been you know pretty pretty crazy lately, even as S&P 500 volatility has been coming in. If you look at momentum long short or growth versus value, the, those factor swings are have been very intense lately, and it just shows that the kind of the digestion period that's happened at the main index level is still happening a little more furiously under the surface. What's the market pricing vis-a-vis the recovery? Because on both sides of the Atlantic, this picture seems incredibly confused as to what exactly is going to happen and how quickly it is going to occur. What do you think is current? You talk to a lot of people and you read a lot of notes. What do you think is currently factored in? I I think at the very least what the market is pricing in is a not U-shaped recovery, but not not a V either. And I I think the the kind of proof in that is the extent to which your, your Fed funds futures curve is a, a flat he- or, you know, in some parts negative heading out into, into perpetuity. That's a pretty good sign that people aren't expecting anything robust enough to uh, to kind of really power a, a broad earnings recovery. But at the same time, we've done enough to, to mitigate the downside measures and protect incomes in a way that the kind of the slide might already be over, even if the, the grind higher to you know, our previous peak in, in earnings or, you know, kind of top line nominal GDP might be a yeah. little longer. Luke Howard sticking with us. Much more on the market. Still ahead here on Bloomberg Radio on the divide between Wall Street and Main Street. That's just around the corner. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. DAB Digital Radio in the London area. Currently, the S&P is up by one-tenth of 1%, climbing in the last few minutes back into positive territory. The, finish, the, the FTSE finishing uh, up one-tenth of 1% to 59.39. The, the story that's really tickling me at the moment is trying to figure out whether the market really believes that the Fed will be prepared to cut to negative. It just seems like such a long way away, and as as we were discussing in the last half hour, all of the main actors from the Fed are are, are in no way indicating that this is a realistic possibility. Yet, the U.S. markets are signalling, U.S. investors are signalling that it is a possibility, if you look at the swap market. Luke Kawa, what do you make of this? Do you think it – is it just a waste of money story here that that is forcing this situation to occur? Or do you think it's in any way a realistic prospect that the market could actually bully the Fed into cutting to negative rates? 
So, yeah, it's, I think uh, the way you've laid it out is, is very apt in this case that a lot of this, I think, has to do with kind of you know, a lot of technical factors related to kind of you know, LIBOR floors and CLOs and where the street is offside positioning in those, and the extent to which you know, any move in that direction would kind of spur more rapid buying of downside, even if it brings you below uh, pricing zero. It has a lot to do with kind of uh, flatteners being taken off, and that requires buy, buying back the kind of the shorter end of the curve and from a low starting point, that implies kind of pushing us into negative territory the other way. But there's also been a lot of kind of cheap-ish option punts on Fed funds future structures or Eurodollar future structures that would pay off and only pay off if the Fed goes to negative. So for you to get kind of that delta hedge type buying that you'd see that kind of helps precipitate the move in the underlying pushing Fed funds uh, futures negative, you first need the interest on those people to bet on negative rates in the first place. So there is a little bit of something there. And it has, I think, just a lot to do with showing off the asymmetry of this experience with the zero lower bound versus the last one. If you look at early 2009, uh, we were pricing in at that point liftoff before the year was out. Uh, Fed fund futures curve at about you know, 2% two years down the road. Right now, the flatness is the main feature, whether or not it's a little negative or not. Uh, it's just telling us we've learned our lesson from the last time that we're going to be here for a while. And that means the asymmetry of zero lower bound means there's only one place to go for rates doesn't really exist anymore. You've touched on something really, really important. It's how long it took for markets to adjust for the low for longer idea. And I think often think people forget it wasn't until 2011 that two-year yields bottomed down in America. It took three years for people to really wake up to this low for longer story. Because if you remember, and I know, Luke, you've been looking at the charts because I saw one that you tweeted out. People still thought rates were going up 12 months after 2009. People still thought rates would go up. It didn't cut, they didn't go up until 2015. It took nine years from the previous hike. And for that reason, Luke, I think everyone's sitting around now in various rooms, uh, probably over Zoom and having teleconferences talking about this, about how long rates are going to remain low for this longer. When you layer on the top the fact that many policymakers have now been conditioned to know that they can let this labour market rip. And I just wonder if that makes a difference too and adds on a few more years. Oh, I, I would completely agree. And I would add another kind of offset of this, and that'd be everyone's kind of favorite debate to bring up over and over and over again is, you know, why did the equity market and the bond market disagree so much? It's this dynamic that's playing out there. People are A, conditioned to believe that inflation is not a worry no matter what, or if it is one, it will be one for a, a very short time before kind of, uh, you know, anything peters out on that front. And they're conditioned to believe that the reaction function after a period of no inflation for or low inflation for so many years, is such that we will be permissive of an overshoot in that direction. So this can cause something where you know we've had the ten-year yield in a twenty basis point range since April fifteenth. So the and you know over that time it's not as if the equity market has done you know, too much on a headline level as well. So all this is telling us is our ability to even think that there's a signal. Uh, coming from the bond market when the reaction function, uh, we believe, also has changed so dramatically, it's going to be very limited. Yep. Luke, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Luke Kawa, Bluebirds Luke Kawa. I think we're going to need some inflation at some point just to get us out of this incredible debt load that we're all going to be carrying. Uh, we're going to carry on with the market coverage. Equity markets on both sides of the Atlantic, fairly flat into the close, certainly for the FTSE uh, and the, uh, the S&P right now in the States. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg.
This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow. A big issue now for the global economy as supply chains are very much in focus. And the United States and other countries are looking at pushing companies to bring those supply chains back home. That's where we started the conversation with Savita Subramaniam of Bank of America. Take a listen. Well, you know, it's, it's a, I, I think it's been happening even before COVID-19. And you heard it just now from, uh, you know, on the, on the previous quote. I mean, it's, this is happening. It's something that's been in the works. Um, you know, I think what's interesting is that we're now seeing legislation coming out of D.C. that is encouraging for companies to, to onshore. They're offering tax incentives. So I think that it's something that we're really going to see um, unfold in, in 2021. Now, I, I wonder, though, I think the big question is, is this going to be bullish for the U.S. economy and for, you know, for labor? And or does that mean like an employment boom in the U.S.? And what we're hearing so far is that companies are more likely to spend on automation as they come back to the U.S. and, and instead of hiring people. Because I think the big problem is that, the labor cost differential between the U.S. employee and employees in China is still quite wide. So companies may actually spend more on technology to automate um, if, they're, if they're bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. So I think that's the thing that we want to keep an eye on. Is, is this going to be inflationary or is this going to be bullish for tech? Something you said at the start of that comment, though, Savita, I think is crucial this is something that existed, started before this crisis. And JP Morgan have yep. pointed out, and I'm sure you might agree, that this particular crisis has reinforced old themes. Does that apply yep. to the broader equity market as well, the concentration, the reliance on the big tech firms? You know, I, I mean, it's really interesting. So I think that one of the risks that we were citing about tech, uh, you know, before COVID-19 was that they were just getting too big and we could see some regulatory friction, um, you know, as we started to see these companies really uh, take over their, their respective indices. I think some of that has died down a bit because we're starting to realize that, um, you know, mega cap growth stocks is not the worst thing that's happened. So so maybe the regulatory, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, furor or the anticipation of regulatory changes for, for high growth tech might not be as big of a concern. But you know what I think is interesting is if you look at um, at growth versus value indices, the growth index is now has now is slated to have the smallest number of members. So it's the growth index, you know, the Russell Growth Index, once it's reconstituted, we put out some projections. It's basically going to have the fewest companies because they're all mega caps. And then the value index is just a bunch of fragmented, smaller disrupted companies. So I think this whole oligopolistic shift in the business models and the big getting bigger and the small just getting smaller and going away doesn't feel like it's going to change anytime soon. And yet there's still so many people looking for a durable rotation to small caps, to value. Savita, as you look at things from your perspective, what do you need to see materialize to actually drive a durable rotation into those other parts of the market as this economy reopens? 
Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I think that what we need to see is a meaningful recovery in corporate profits. So the one kind of like long-term, the best rule for thinking about growth versus value is uh, when profits accelerate and when growth broadens out, investors become price sensitive and they start looking for cheap growth. And we haven't really seen growth accelerate for a very long time. Um, you know, if we come out of the, the this, you know, stay-at-home situation and, and it's, you know, guns a-blazing, full force, 100% capacity utilization, everything's great, then I think we could see a full-fledged value rotation. But barring that, and it doesn't really feel like that's the type of recovery we're going to see, barring that, I think it could be problematic. So, you know, our take is it's not growth versus value, but within the value benchmark, we like financials. Within the growth benchmark, we like staples. We like, you know, big tech. We like uh, healthcare. So I don't know if it's really a style call at this point, but it's more about looking for individual stocks that are inexpensive, higher quality, have safe yields, and we're finding those stocks in both the growth and the value benchmark. So I think that's what's kind of interesting right now is there are, there are opportunities in bo- on both sides of that spectrum. Savita, so just on the financials, help me out here, because I think it is a bit of a myth that this market has recovered when you pick out the financials and look where they've been trading. They're still near the lows. The likes of JP Morgan lost about a third, a third of its value off the highs, and it's still there. Can you walk me through... Yep. Which financials, the kind of business models that you've identified that you think can be successful in the months and years to come? Yeah, so I think it's really a question of, you know, you look for the most regulated companies that are the healthiest at this point from a balance sheet perspective. Um, and those are generally, you know, the SIFIs, the systemically important financial institutions. And I think what's interesting there is that these companies have been, have done the opposite of everything else in the S&P 500. They haven't levered up. They haven't been buying back a ton of stock until recently. They have, you have very clean balance sheets. So I think from the perspective of risk versus valuation, that's the area of the benchmark that I think looks the most interesting and attractive. And, I, and you know, again, I think what's happening is that investors are painting financials with the brush of you need yield curve steepening, you need, you know, a big economic recovery in order for these companies to work. I don't think that's the case. I think, again, you know, I've said this before, I think they represent quality, they represent Dividend yield and uh, and those aspects are are still relatively scarce in this you know zero interest rate world we live in. Savita Subramanian there of Bank of America and Guy, I think this is a key issue for me. This myth that this market has recovered, it hasn't. I mean, the S and P five hundred as an index hasn't recovered. Some of the big tech names might be positive on the year, but areas of this market have really lacked. Banks, one of them. I mean, financials have really just sat near the bottom and not done much at all. I, I think there's a couple of factors that are worth bearing in mind here, John. We still have an incredibly flat curve, which isn't particularly positive. We still don't have a good understanding, I think, uh, of what uh, of, of what the loan situation is going to look like. Um, because at this point in time, I don't think we've really felt the full effect uh, of the shutdown. I, at the moment, uh, we are seeing businesses being supported. At, at some point, that is going to stop. Government is going to have to lay off, both in terms of supporting people and businesses. And at that point, I think life's going to get really, really tricky, John. Much more still to come through the week. Hopefully, we'll get you some more clarity on what this slow reopening of the UK actually means. More to come from Guy Johnson and myself, Jonathan Farrow. This, what's the cable? This is Bloomberg Radio.